Well, this morning, uh, if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me as we hear the word of the Lord read together. I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Uh, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Now you may be seated. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Father, we ask that you would give us uh, wisdom as we consider this passage today, uh, that you would make uh, difficult things clear, uh, that you would work in our hearts to be uh, convicted and encouraged and comforted. And Lord, we thank you for your goodness. May you pray. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we are continuing in our study of the book of 1 Peter, and we are looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 together, which I just read for us. And over the past few months, as we've made our way through the book of 1 Peter, uh, we have encountered a number of significant themes. And, and two of these themes show up again in our passage this morning. In chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, so all of the chapters we've looked at, um, in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 of 1 Peter, Peter has continually uh, returned to the theme of suffering for faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter has endeavored to assure these persecuted and, and scattered Christians that suffering is an expected result uh, when we are seeking to live a faithful life. He, he wants them to understand that the presence of suffering in their lives uh, does not mean that the promises of the gospel have been broken. He wants to make sure that's clear to them. The presence of suffering in their lives does not mean that the promises of the gospel have been broken. And so he continually points us to the example of Jesus Christ. Uh, to help us to understand that faithfulness often leads to suffering and may even increase our suffering. And so Peter returns to this theme in every chapter of this book uh, because he wants his readers, including us this morning, uh, to understand that faithfulness will not always lead to present material blessings. At times, it will lead directly to suffering. And so that's one of the themes he returns to this morning. He also returns to the theme of the approaching return of Jesus Christ as judge and king in our passage today. Uh, one of my favorite things about 1 Peter is that every time that Peter introduces the topic of suffering for our faithfulness to Jesus Christ, uh, he, also points, uh, he also points us to the approaching return of Jesus Christ to encourage us as we suffer. Uh, Peter, he picks up and he celebrates this Old Testament theme of looking forward to the coming of the day of the Lord, uh, the, the day when God will appear to all of the inhabitants of this world to conquer all of his enemies and to righteously judge the earth. Uh, and this is the idea captured in the song, When the Man Comes Around. Uh, some of y'all have heard Johnny Cash sing this. Um, you know, it kind of takes this idea of the coming day of the Lord, when the Lord will return. 
uh, kind of makes it a kind of gives you a Western theme idea of it, right? Uh, you know, the town's been running, being run by the bad guys, but don't worry, you know, the sheriff is returning. And, and this idea that there will be a day when all the wrongs are made right. Um, there'll be a day when the righteous who have suffered unjustly will be vindicated when God arrives, <laughs> when he shows back up in town in power and righteousness to judge the living and the dead. And it's a great song. Uh, it's obviously not original to Johnny Cash. Uh, the, the, the Old Testament, the New Testament are full of passages that discuss this theme. Um, but this theme sticks with us. We love this idea, um, this idea that you know, things may not be right right now, but don't worry. Don't worry. God is coming back. And that's what Peter tells us again and again in 1 Peter. Look, you're going to suffer, but don't worry. Jesus is returning. Um, and so Peter tells us to long for it, to look forward to it, not only because we long to be with Jesus, but because we long for justice. And so as chapter 4 begins, Peter calls these persecuted and, and displaced Christians to respond to the example of the, their suffering Savior uh, by taking up suffering, um, the suffering of self-denial, uh, especially in their very hedonistic culture. Um, and he tells them to do this in spite of the reality that persecution may actually increase as a result of this. Uh, back in the first chapter of this book, Peter told us that uh, we are pilgrims, we are exiles, we are, we are aliens in this world. And, and pilgrims and exiles and aliens uh, who refuse to look and to act and to speak like the dominant culture, they become easy targets uh, for slander and for abuse. Uh, the, the more our behavior stands out from the behavior of the dominant culture, uh, the more we will be slandered and abused. The, the more our words stand out from the words of the dominant culture, uh, the more we will be slandered, the more we will be abused. Uh, the more our beliefs stand in contrast to the beliefs of the dominant culture, the more we will be slandered and abused. Uh, this was true for the first recipients of Peter's letter, uh, who had suffered significant loss because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It's true for Christians today, uh, who live in one of the uh, hundred countries that officially persecute Christians. It's true for us in our own country. Um, as we begin to increasingly face uh, slander, um, litigation, when um, our views and when our words and when our actions don't line up uh, with that of our culture. You know, as this chapter begins, Peter calls these persecuted and displaced Christians to respond to the example of their suffering Savior by taking up the suffering of self-denial um, in the midst of a culture that did not deny themselves anything, even though Peter knows that this may actually increase the persecution they're experiencing. And as you read these verses, you realize why we need to hear this. Uh, we need to hear this because uh, we all want to do all that we can uh, to minimize the effects of and to shorten the duration of the suffering that we experience. None of us likes to suffer. Um, none of us likes to talk about it. None of us like to think about it, right? But we all experience it. And so whenever suffering comes into our lives, kind of our first instinct is, okay, how do I minimize the effects and how do I get out of this as quick as possible? And here... Peter tells us that there are times when faithfulness does not allow us to take that course of action. In, in, in these moments, we must submit to the will of God and suffer in the present while we entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ, who has secured our future. And so that's kind of the, the main idea of this passage today. And since, since we know that we also struggle to submit to God's will, uh, when it looks like the suffering of self-denial or when it looks like public persecution. We need to pay close attention to the truths that we find in this passage today. And so this morning, uh, we're going to walk through this passage together, and then we're going to spend just a few minutes looking at three ways, uh, three ways to respond 
uh, to the truths we find in Peter's words today. And as he begins this chapter, Peter calls us to take up the suffering of self-denial. And I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 again for us to say this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter, Peter begins uh, by referring back to 1 Peter 3.18 and, and by reminding us of the example of the faithful suffering of Jesus Christ and, and the results from it. Uh, Jesus willingly suffered on the cross uh, the righteous for the unrighteous, to free us from the slavery to sin and to bring us to God. That's what uh, 1 Peter 3.18 tells us. And Wayne Grudem, Wayne Grudem tells us that you know, previously, uh, Peter's theme has been a willingness to suffer to give a good witness. And now uh, the, the emphasis shifts to the related theme of willingness to suffer in order to avoid sinning. So that's kind of the, the subtle shift in the theme here. This is at least the fourth time that I've preached on suffering in 1 Peter. Somehow it's worked out that way. Um, but this is the fourth time I've preached on suffering, but it's a subtle shift in it. Um, where now it's not so much about just maintaining a good Christian witness, it's also a willingness to suffer in order to avoid <laughs> sinning. And so in this first verse, Peter tells us to arm ourselves. He tells us to take up our weapon for the battle with sin. And, and what is this weapon that we're, we're to take up to help us in our battle with sin and temptation? Well, Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking as Jesus had in regards to the cross. Jesus understood that there are things worth suffering for. Uh, he willingly submitted to suffering to make a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and for us to be freed from slavery and bondage to sin. And, and why should we arm ourselves with this same way of thinking? Well, Peter tells us because whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Yeah, yeah what a... I was talking with Dave this week about just the, some of the interesting phrases in Peter that we have to you know, make you stop and think about them for a while. Uh, and this is one of those. It's an interesting phrase. And as you can imagine, uh, commentators are careful to explain what this means and, and what it doesn't mean. Now, it doesn't mean uh, that if we experience enough suffering in this life that we can live a sinless existence on earth. Uh, there are many passages in the Bible that do not allow us to interpret this verse in this way. Uh, one of those is 1 John 1.8 that says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so Peter is not telling us that if we suffer, uh, then we're going to completely stop sinning while we're on earth. Uh, Peter is telling us that followers of Jesus Christ no longer live under the dominion of sin. And, and Wayne Grudem explains this verse by saying, As a general statement, without qualification, this would not be true. For there are many people who have suffered physically and yet still, still sin very much. Nor is Peter simply saying that physical suffering somehow purifies and strengthens people. It strengthens some, but others become rebellious towards God and, and, and embittered. Uh, so he goes on to explain uh, that cease from sin doesn't mean no longer sins at all. Instead, it means that we have been, uh, that we've made a serious break from sin. Uh, that when we um, repent of our sins, we go to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, that there's a change that happens, there's a serious break with sin. Uh, Simon Kistemacher explains it. He says, uh, the follower of Christ has abandoned a life of sin because the ruling power of sin has been broken. Or as the Apostle Paul says, uh, Romans 6, 11 through 14, which I'm going to read for us. Uh, Paul says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And so Peter, Peter is calling us to arm ourselves in the battle against sin and temptation with the manner of thinking of Jesus Christ by taking up the suffering of self-denial in our battle against sin. Um, and he's telling us that as we do this, um, we cease from sin in the sense that we are no longer under the dominion or slavery of sin. Uh, in verse 2, he kind of explains this further. Uh, Peter says that we are to do this uh, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, uh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so in this, in this verse, Peter is telling us that after, after we come to Jesus, um, after we come to Jesus in faith and repentance, our lives no longer um, are, to, are no longer to be shaped by our desires to sin. Our lives are now to be shaped by our desire to please God, to do God's will as revealed to us in Scripture. And I'm going to read another quote for us. This is from Edmund Clowney, and he explains this verse. He says, uh, For the Christian, the rest of his life begins with the faith that unites him to Christ. Having died to sin, he is alive to God. The rest of his life is no longer shaped by the desires of sin, but by the will of God. Peter is not teaching that the Christian is now perfect and that sin is no longer a problem for him. Indeed, he writes to urge Christians to forsake sin. Yet there is a decisive difference. They have died to sin and have gained the freedom to live according to the will of God. Their lives are now different. And I know I've read several quotes about these first two verses, but it's important that we understand what Peter is and what he's not saying. Uh, Peter's not saying that we are free from the struggle against sin and against temptation. Uh, Peter is calling us to arm ourselves in the battle against sin and temptation um, by thinking like Jesus, recognizing that some things are worth suffering for, um, even the suffering of self-denial, of denying ourselves the things that we want when we want them. Uh, we're, we're no longer uh, defeated. We're no longer bound by our sinful desires. We're now free to fight against our sinful desires. Um, that's the idea. We're, we're no longer bound by them. We're no longer defeated by them. We're now free uh, to fight against our sinful desires. We're now free to fight against our sinful passions. Uh, we are free to fight to live according to God's will as he's revealed it to us in his word. And so as he begins this chapter, Peter calls us to take up the suffering of self-denial, um, to follow the example of Jesus Christ who suffered on the cross for us um, so that we could uh, die to sin and come alive to God. And then in verses three and four, Peter warns us of the abusive response of the hedonist. Uh, let me read those verses again for us. Uh, verses three and four say, For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. And so verse two tells us to live the rest of our lives in the flesh, uh, submitting our sinful passions to the will of God. And verse 3 tells us why. Uh, why live? Uh, and, so, and so we live in a culture, uh, we live in a culture that sounds remarkably like that of Peter's first readers, right? I mean, you read the th this list of the things that he's saying the Gentiles want to do. That's what um, people want to do today. It has, not much has changed here. Uh, Peter's description of the sins that the Gentiles want to do are a picture of, of what I like to call therapeutic hedonism. Uh, hedonism is, is the philosophy that the pursuit the pursuit of and the finding of pleasure is the best thing that we can uh, hope for in this life. And so the goal of a hedonist is, 
is to pursue as much pleasure as they can, as often as they can. And hedonism, uh, as a philosophy, obviously, has existed in every culture, uh, but it was certainly widespread and rampant in the Roman Empire, um, and it's certainly widespread in our own culture as well. Uh, a few months ago, I was in the waiting room of a doctor's office, and uh, I don't normally listen to the radio, and, uh, but I was in the doctor's office, so I was, you know, a captured audience, so I was listening to the radio station during my wait, and as I sat there, I realized that every song that I heard uh, told the same story of what, I, what I'm calling therapeutic hedonism. Uh, the singer kind of painfully admits that their life isn't going well, uh, that they don't know what uh, to do to make it better. And so in an effort to kind of relieve this problem, they're like, well, I'm going to forget those problems and I'm going to go out with my friends tonight. And that's kind of like four songs in a row. Where that, that was the main thrust was, you know what? Everything's wrong. I don't know how to fix it. So I might as well enjoy tonight. And that's kind of this idea of hedonism, this pursuit of pleasure. Um, they recognize their real problems, uh, but the only solution that they can think of is to try to forget them. Um, and, and since they don't know a real solution, they just try to forget them. Well, Peter says that the time is past, uh, that, sorry, that Peter says that the time that is past uh, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The time that you've already spent attempting to satisfy your sinful desires is sufficient. Uh, he tells us it's enough. Uh, you've already seen that a life consumed with satisfying your passions is unsatisfied. Uh, you've already seen that it can't deliver on its promises. You know, all that the pursuit of sinful pleasure could ever do is fail to keep the promises that it makes when you're in the middle of uh, being tempted, and it can earn you condemnation for your sins. That's all it could ever accomplish. Peter tells us that we are now new creations in Christ and that the time we've already spent devoted to our sinful passions was sufficient. He tells us it's time to leave that life behind. And then in verse 4, Peter warns us of what will happen if we actually do this. I'm going to read verse 4 again. Um, he says, With respect to this, they are surprised uh, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Uh, he tells us that the unbelievers around us will respond to our refusal to participate and their hedonistic lifestyle of unrestrained, chaotic, chasing after pleasures in two ways. Uh, first, Peter tells us that they will be surprised. Uh, they will be surprised when we don't join, uh, join in with them for, for moral reasons. And they will be surprised because they don't believe that what they're doing is wrong, and they can't believe that anyone else would think it would be wrong either. Uh, you know, why would anyone consider a life characterized by the unrestrained pursuit of boundaryless pleasures sinful? That's the question, right? And this is a serious question from them. Uh, they wonder, how could anyone ever think this is wrong? Uh, so they can't, they can't believe that someone so backwards exists. They don't believe they are wrong. They don't believe there will ever be any sort of consequences for their action. Uh, and they are surprised when you do not join in, with their, join in with or approve of their lifestyle. And so Peter tells us that the first reaction from this group will be surprise. Uh, Peter tells us that once they get over their initial shock, they will malign you. Uh, other translations use words like slander or abuse. Um, and so in response to your moral stand, they will abuse you for your morality. Uh, Wayne Grudem once again helps us here with his thoughts. He says, uh, why slander Christians? No doubt, because silent non-participation in sin often implies condemnation of that sin. And rather than change their ways, unbelievers will slander those who have pained their consciousness or justify their own immorality by spreading rumors that the righteous Christians are, are immoral as well. 
And so if, if silent non-participation in sin gets you slandered, even more so while speaking against uh, the cherished sins of your culture, right? In verses 3 and 4, Peter, Peter warns us of the truth that the morality of those who seek to faithfully follow Jesus is a threat to those who reject Jesus. And he tells us that they will respond with slander and abuse and persecution. And then in verses 5 and 6, Peter assures us that we will be vindicated. In spite of what he said in 3 and 4, he assures us in 5 and 6 that we're going to be vindicated. I'm going to read verses 5 and 6. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. In verses 3 and 4, Peter tells us that our refusal to pursue the sinful pleasures of our culture will make us the objects of slander and abuse. Well, <laughs> you hear that and you think, well, shouldn't we be alarmed by this? That doesn't sound good, right? Well, in verses 5 and 6, Peter explains why this isn't a cause for our alarm. Uh, verse 5 tells us that they will give an account to him who judges the living and the dead. Uh, Peter keeps circling back to this idea, to this truth, um, that Jesus is returning. And that when he does, he will make everything right. Uh, essentially, Peter is saying um, that we should not be alarmed by the threat of slander. Um, they should be alarmed that Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead. And, and it's interesting that Peter adds that kind of that phrase, that explanation that Jesus judges both the living and the dead. Uh, because most religions in that time didn't believe that there would be any accountability for actions after your death. Um, you were either... You know, punished during your life by experiencing kind of negative circumstances, or you got away with it. That was kind of the, the prevailing theory, was if you, you made it to death without being punished, you made it. Um, here, Peter is warning that death is no escape from the judgment of the returning king and the returning judge, Jesus Christ. Uh, which is why he says in verse 6, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. In verse 6, uh, Peter tells us that Christians, uh, those who have heard and believed the good news of the gospel, uh, will be vindicated when Jesus returns, uh, whether they are still living uh, when he returns or if they have already died. Uh, and Edmund Clowney explains these verses. Um, he says, Who then are the dead to whom Christ was preached? Evidently, Peter speaks of them to encourage the Asian Christians. That is why Peter refers to the judgment uh, persecutors will be held accountable and Christians will be vindicated. Uh, Peter's reassuring words fits the context perfectly if we understand him to be speaking of the dead who will be vindicated by Christ in the judgment. That is the Christian dead. Uh, Peter connects verses 5 and 6 with 4. The point of 4, therefore, is not to suggest reasons why Christ should judge the living and the dead, but rather to draw out and underline an aspect of his judgment which will comfort and sustain the Asian Christians. That because he is a righteous judge, their converted brothers who have died have not believed in him in vain. Um, Peter tells us that because of the certainty of the coming judgment, uh, the gospel has been proclaimed even to those who are now dead, but who were living when they heard and responded to the gospel. It's kind of a, a tricky way to understand this, but I think it's the best way. Um, this idea that uh, Peter is referring to those Christians who have believed the gospel, who are alive, they heard the gospel, and now they've died. And one of the reasons um, for understanding it this way is that in the first century, um, as Christians proclaimed the return of Christ, and they uh, proclaimed that he is coming back soon, as generations died, um, pagans, those who didn't believe in the gospel, 
uh, would actually uh, confront them with this. They'd say, well, where's Jesus? You guys, you guys are dying. What about that? And so they had to explain, well, they had to explain, if you think about um, uh, Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, right? He has to explain, well, what's, what's happened to the Christians who've already died? Um, so the Christians um, and the apostles had to explain and answer these kind of challenges about, well, what about the death of believers? And so Peter tells us um, that those who've heard the gospel and died, there's no reason to be anxious. Uh, there's no reason to be anxious for the Christians who've died before Jesus has returned. And so in the first chapter of this book, uh, Peter told us uh, that we are pilgrims, that we are exiles, that we are aliens in the world. And he continues to look at kind of, if that's true, then what happens next? What's your experience going to be like in this world? He, can, he continues uh, to kind of draw this out for us. You know, um, pilgrims and exiles and aliens who refuse to look and to act like and to speak like the dominant culture, they're easy targets. Uh, easy targets for slander and abuse. And so chapter 4 begins as Peter calls these persecuted and these displaced Christians uh, to respond to the example of Jesus Christ by following that example, suffering the, uh, taking up the suffering of self-denial uh, in the midst of a culture that refused to deny themselves anything, even though Peter knows that it will actually result in more suffering. And it concludes with Peter encouraging them to be unafraid. He encourages them to be unafraid of those who are slandering them because uh, there will be a day when all the wrongs are made right. Uh, there will be a day when the righteous who have suffered unjustly will be vindicated. And that day is the day when Jesus returns in power and in righteousness to judge the living and the dead. And this morning, before we go, we're going to spend just a few minutes uh, looking at three ways to respond to the truths that we find in Peter's words today. And the first way that we are to, to the first way that we're to respond uh, to the truths that we find in Peter's words today is by taking up our battle with sin. Uh, we, so we respond by taking up our battle with sin. Yeah, as Christians uh, who have been saved by the grace of God and whose salvation is uh, secured for us by the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, uh, we often struggle to know how to think about our ongoing struggle with sin and temptation. Uh, you know, in, in Ephesians, Paul celebrates. Uh, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as a gift of God. And then Paul also in Romans 6 is sure to tell us uh, that we aren't to abuse that grace uh, that we've received by continuing to live in sinful patterns of life that we knew before we knew Christ as Lord. And so the New Testament, it takes both the grace, um, the kind of the grace nature of, the, of a salvation of justification by faith and not by our own works and it takes our participation in the struggle against sin and temptation as part of our ongoing sanctification. It takes both of those things seriously. And here in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter calls us to take up the battle against sin, even when it means suffering, especially, especially when it means suffering. And we're not only talking about the suffering of persecution, uh, when we refuse to participate in or, or, or we denounce the sins of our culture. Uh, we're also talking about the suffering of self-denial when we resist temptation. Uh, it's not easy uh, to deny our passions and to submit to the will of God, especially not in the heat of temptation. If, if it was, the authors in the New Testament wouldn't need to do so uh, to, to kind of so frequently urge us on in this battle. They wouldn't have to keep saying, no, forsake sin, no, forsake sin, don't forget your new creation. It wouldn't keep coming up if this was easy. Um, it, it's, much easier, it's much easier to give in to sin, uh, to ease the threat of persecution. It's easier to give in to sin uh, to end a struggle with temptation rather than it is to continue the fight. And yet we're called to reject uh, the hedonistic, pleasure-seeking, 
values of our culture and to keep on fighting. And, and we're given God's spirit. We're given God's word. We're given God's people. Uh, we're given the example of our suffering Savior to help us in this fight. And, and so if you, feel, if you feel like you've lost this battle, if you feel like you've lost the will to fight against sin and temptation, Peter tells us to take heart. He tells us to take heart because our great Savior suffered and died for us. And because he's done that, we are now no longer living under the dominion of sin. We're no longer under the bondage to sin. Uh, we are free to fight against sin while continually entrusting ourselves to the grace of our Savior when we fail. And so the Bible calls us to both rejoice in the grace of our salvation secured for us, uh, not by our own works, but by the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. And it calls us to lean into the work of no longer living according to our sinful passions, but instead living according to the will of God. And so that's the, the first way that we are uh, challenged to respond to these truths today um, that we find in Peter's words, this idea of taking up our battle with sin. Uh, the second way that we are to respond to the truths that we find in Peter's words today is by preparing to receive a mixed response to our faithful living. Uh, we prepare to receive a mixed response to our faithful living. You know, in, in 1 Peter uh, Peter tells us to expect to suffer for our faithfulness to Christ. Uh, he makes that very clear. Uh, he also tells us that our faithful suffering will be met by a mixed response. You know, at times, Peter encourages us uh, to, to bear up under our suffering because our faithful witness will lead others to glorify God. Uh, there are times when our faithful suffering and our faithfulness in suffering uh, will function as a witness to the truth of the gospel to a watching world, to a watching relative, to a watching friend. <laughs> At other times, our faith in us will be met with the slander and scorn and even with persecution. That's what Peter tells us throughout his book. Uh, th this is true for us as well. Uh, we, we should not be surprised when our faithfulness to Christ or our faithfulness to his word and his commands uh, is met with a mixed response by those outside of the church. Uh, the more our behavior stands out from the behavior of the dominant culture, the more we will be slandered and abused, Right? Uh, the more that our words stand out from the words of the dominant culture, the more we'll be slandered, the more we'll be abused. Uh, the more our beliefs um, stand out from the beliefs of the dominant culture, the more we'll be slandered and abused. And we, we don't have time for me to go there this morning, but uh, I would encourage you to read Psalm 37 um, as you consider this point today. The psalmist offers uh, helpful instructions to the righteous as they suffer. And so in, in 1 Peter 4, Peter prepares us uh, in 1 Peter 4, Peter prepares us to suffer, um, to face the scorn of the world uh, by warning us to expect this, um, by telling us uh, to commit to faithfulness to Jesus Christ regardless of the result. Um, that's his point in this passage, is that we commit to, the, to faithful suffering for Jesus Christ regardless of the result. Because sometimes uh, people will see our suffering and they will be um, astounded by it. They will want to know, what, how are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Um, they'll be drawn to the gospel. And at other times, they will see our faithful suffering, and they will scorn what we're going through. They will slander us as we go through it. They will say, see, we knew they couldn't have been faithful. They couldn't have been good people. Look what's happening, right? And so Peter tells us uh, to be prepared for a mixed response. Uh, he tells us to, co to continue to commit to faithfulness to Jesus Christ, uh, regardless of the result, because the world is not the judge that we need to be afraid of, that we need to be concerned with. And so the second way that we're to respond to the truths that we find in Peter's words today is by preparing to receive a mixed response to our faithful living. 
Uh, the third way that we're, we are to respond to the truths that we find in Peter's words today is by eagerly anticipating the return of the king. Uh, we respond by eagerly anticipating the return of the king. Uh, Peter, Peter concludes chapter 3 by telling us that the resurrected Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That's kind of how he ends chapter 3 right before this section. It's with Jesus enthroned in charge of everything. And throughout the book of 1 Peter, he continues to remind us that this king who has gone into heaven, who is at the right hand of God, uh, with angels and authorities, with all the powers having been subjected to him, that's the king who's returning. And that when he does, he will defeat his enemies and he will judge both the living and the dead. Uh, this, is, this is a truth that Christians are meant to celebrate. Um, it's a truth that we are meant to find encouragement in. You know, we, we pray for God's enemies to repent, to place their faith in Jesus Christ. We pray um, that they would cease from their war with God and they would cease from their war with his people. Uh, we proclaim the gospel publicly. We proclaim the gospel broadly uh, so that many will hear and many will believe. And as we suffer in this life, we continue to entrust, uh, we entrust ourselves, body and soul, to our good Savior as we look forward to the day when we will join with the saints who have gone on before us. You know, Revelation 19 has this incredible picture of the saints who have gone on before us as they see God's righteous judgment and his victories. Um, and they're crying out, hallelujah. Um, that's their response to this. They cry out, hallelujah, uh, when God's enemies are thrown down, when righteousness reigns. And as we await this day, uh, we join our voices with the generations of saints who have gone on before us and who have prayed. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You know, as we long for the return of our King. Let me pray for